Well, the book of James is often referred to as the New Testament book of Proverbs. Uh, it is the only New Testament book that falls into the category of what some call wisdom literature. Uh, James, uh, he has a goal in his writing of this letter. And there's two practical areas that James will get at with the things he's going to, to teach us or what God's going to teach us through James. And those two areas are right thinking and right living. Correct behavior, if you prefer it that way. James' approach is one of being practical. Very practical. Leading many to label the book of James as a book that points us to the subject of faith that works. Um, In the five chapters of the book of James, James will give us some 50 plus imperatives. Uh, By the word imperative, we mean a command. These are not options or things to consider. God is saying, do these things. He does so in order to communicate the need for urgent action on the part of those who are listening, those who are reading God's Word. Uh, James is what we would call, as I told some of you this morning, James is pretty plain spoken. Uh, There's no gray area with James. It's all black and white. To be honest with you, you've heard the old term, he stepped on my toes today. Well, get ready. James will do that. And to be quite honest, we need that. We need God through His Word to step on our toes, to enter into our comfort zone, to make us uncomfortable with our sin, to convict us of our sin, and urge us toward righteous living. James here, writing this letter inspired by the Spirit, he's very convicting in this letter. And I'll be honest with you, reading through this letter, I don't care who you are, James is going to rub each and every one of us the wrong way. There's going to be something we're going to have to step back and take a look at ourselves on. There's no one gets exempt in the book of James. It's sort of an introduction. I'm going to take verses 1 and 2 and just do a brief introduction. And the, the, the bulk of what we deal with today will come from verses 2 through 8. So if you're looking there in verse 1, we see that James is the author. He identifies himself there as James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus, okay? And he also was a a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. If you go to Acts chapter 15, you'll see James' name mentioned there several times. James, during the most uh, part of his um, Jesus' earthly ministry didn't believe in James, along with all of Jesus' brothers. They didn't believe in Jesus. And if you go to John chapter 7, John points it out there very clearly that Jesus and his brothers didn't believe on him, which meant they didn't believe in who he was and the work that he came to do. So that's sort of interesting. If that was the position that James was in, and we come and there's this book, this letter in the Bible written by James, obviously James becomes to be what? A believer and believe upon his brother Jesus and to believe upon the Savior. And again, James is a, if you read the book of Acts and study James, he's a very prominent leader in the early life of the church. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, even refers to James as a pillar of of the church. He was a prominent leader in the life of the church. Notice something else here about James in verse 1 that James refers to himself as what? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, Jesus is who? I mean, excuse me, James is who? He's the half brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same home as Jesus. They probably played on the floor together growing up as kids and And they probably slept in the same room, maybe even that time period of the small quarters they had. They probably slept together, they ate together, they fought together as probably brothers do, right? Some of you guys know in your head, yes, uh, we do that. 
Um, James could have very easily said, this is James, the most important pastor in the city of Jerusalem. He could have said, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Instead, James says what? I am a servant. I am a willing slave to Jesus. He deliberately chooses a term that shows how he viewed himself as a believer. So, we see right up front the attitude of James as a follower of Jesus. What does he tell us in his relationship to his brother, which is his Savior? How does he view himself in relation to Jesus? He says, I am a servant. And that word in in Greek is bondservant. It means slave, surrendering all to a person. Now, I just want to make a quick point of application here. If you're a Christian, is this how you view yourself? If we profess to be believers, do we view ourselves as servants? Do you view yourself as a servant of Christ? If you've repented of sin, you've heard the gospel, you've turned from sin and placed your trust in Christ, are you living your life as a servant of Jesus? Or on the weekends, are you living like the rest of the world? Are you indulging in your carnal desires, seeking earthly and worldly satisfaction, and not walking in the way of the Lord? Are you really living like a servant of Jesus? If you're a slave, that means you do what? You hand over everything in submission to this person. Does your life show that you really believe that you're a servant of Christ? How about your priorities, your agendas? How about your desire to know Jesus, to love Him, and to obey Him? Listen, in every area of your life, parenting, relationships, finances, jobs, Every area of our life, we are to submit those to Christ. We are to be a slave and a servant of Jesus. Notice also in verse 1, we get the idea here. uh, We're we're told who he's writing this letter to. He says, he's writing this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Some of you are going, who are those people? Who in the world is he writing to? Now, there's some people hold that James is just writing in general his letter to Christians. Now, I think that's true in the case for you and I sitting here today. This letter is written for Christians in general, but James had a specific audience, and I think he had a specific audience because we see the word there, 12 tribes, which automatically tells us what? This is a a Jewish audience that he's writing to, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. It's most likely that these believers were the early uh, church in Jerusalem, who after Stephen, you remember Stephen in the book of Acts was stoned to death, he was persecuted, rampant persecution started, and people began to disperse, they were scattered out, and James here is writing to these people to uh, encourage them and exhort them in times of great persecution and trial and oppression. As the leader of the Jerusalem church, James writes here as a pastor, and he instructs these people, Here's how we live when we're facing difficulties in our life. And he starts right at the beginning and showing us that. So that's some what of an introduction there. So in the book of James, there's a prominent theme that, that goes through there. And it's this. Test for a genuine and living faith. You read the book of James, that would be the overall theme. Test for a genuine living faith. But for us today, in verses uh, 2 through 8, or verses 1 through 8, here's going to be the main idea. The testing of faith in the midst of trials. The testing of faith. The testing of the believer's faith in the midst of trials. So, let's look at verses 2 through 4. If you're looking for an outline, here's what we have. 
The benefits of trials in a believer's life. The benefits of trials in a believer's life. Some of you are sitting there and go, I've never gave a thought to trials were a benefit to me in my life. We're going to find out in the book of James how that is the case. Notice what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells the Christian that trials are a benefit to you. As hard as that may be for us to comprehend, that's what God's Word says. He's saying that the trials in the lives of believers serves God's purpose for bringing that believer to maturity in their faith. In other words, trials are a benefit to us because they grow us up in our faith. They mature us in our faith. In verse 2 there, notice what James says. He says, count it all, what did he say? Joy, my brothers. Some of you have translations that say consider. It just means to think. Think upon trials from the standpoint of joy. He says, count it all, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I want, to, I want to clarify something. In the day and time we live in here, James is not the TV preacher here, okay? Who claims to have the secret to joy, or is he giving it, nor is he giving a self-help sermon, and afterwards he's going to ask you to buy his best-selling book for $9.95, and you can get the DVDs for $19.95, which will give you the secret to overcoming trials and difficulties in your life. That's not what James is going to do. James starts by telling the Christian that life is sometimes hard. Amen? Life is sometimes hard. Even with Jesus, life is hard. But I also want to tell you this. The Christian life is the best life, but it's not the easiest life. As a matter of fact, sometimes the closer you get to Jesus, the harder life can be. Some of you are nodding your head. Exactly right. James says, don't be shocked when you have a bad day or when you have bad days. Days. James says, when trials come, count it all joy. Consider it. Think upon these as joy. And I know some of you are sitting there going right now, this James guy has lost his mind. Remember, he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write what he's writing. Look at your trials, he says, and think of them as joy. James didn't say, count or consider them happiness, did he? Where, where does happiness come from? Circumstances. And when circumstances change, what changes? Happiness. James is not saying count it all happiness. He says count it all joy. It does not mean to, to, to merely see it as worldly, temporal happiness. But rather it means lasting, complete joy in the Lord who is, by the way, sovereign over all of your trials and your suffering in your life. He's in control. He's over all those things. Notice something there. It's not if you meet trials, but when you meet trials. Again, don't be shocked when you have a bad day or several bad days. How many of you ever heard the saying, Mama told me there'd be days like this. She just didn't say they'd come in bunches. God is saying to the believer, I'm telling you, trials will come in your life. And I don't want to disrespect the Holy Spirit here, but I think He may be saying, I'm telling you this, and I went ahead and put it up front in the letter here in verse 2 because I wasn't sure you'd read the rest of the letter, but I want you to understand this right at the beginning. 
And the trials are going to be, noticed there, various kinds. James says there will be many kinds of trials in the life of a Christian. Life will present the believer with a wide spectrum of challenges. Nothing is off limits to the believer when it comes to trials. Some of us raise children who become adults, and we see them die and go to be with Jesus. Some may have suffered unfaithfulness of a spouse. Some may have lost a job. Some of you know what it is to have a friend betray you, right? Some of you have received disturbing medical news. Some of you have experienced a broken family relationship. Some of you have been involved in long-term care of a family member. and You've watched them suffer. You've watched them leave this walk of life. The list could go on and on. And on. There's no such thing as a Christian being immune from trials in his life or her life. The way we cope with our trials is to put them in biblical perspective and to obey what God's Word says we ought to do when trials come. And James gives us God's Word. He gives us God's counsel here. And he does it in four different ways. Now, look at verse 4. I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, you skipped a verse. I'm going to work my way backwards. Okay, to this count it all joy statement. In verse 4, we're told the purposes of trials. As I said, I'm going to work my way backwards from 4 to 3 and back to 2. In verse 4, notice what the purpose of God is in your trials. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And here it is, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. The purpose of trials for the Christian is so that they will be completely steadfast. This refers to faithful endurance in the Christian life. Trials lead to steadfast, enduring faith. And steadfastness in trials, notice what it says there, it leads to being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Most of us never give consideration to the trials in our life in which God is sovereign over and allows them to come in our lives. We never look at those as counting them as joy because they're going to perfect us and make us complete and we're not going to be lacking anything in our lives. God is working in your trials to build up your faith in order that you will be made perfect, that you'll be mature in your faith. I I know that's hard to comprehend, but God's plan is for you and me to be made perfect like Jesus. And He's going to use the trials in our life to do that. James tells the believer... That's where you start and how you think about trials in your life. That's where you start when trials come. This trial is going to perfect me. It's going to make me steadfast in my faith. It's going to mature me to the point where I'm lacking nothing. Now, I want to warn you, that could take a considerable amount of time to get you to that point. Right? Everything that is going on in your life, notice I said everything, is part of God's plan to mature you as a follower of Jesus, to make you complete and lacking in nothing. Don't, here's what we like to do. Me included. But here's what we shouldn't do. Don't think of how to escape the trial. When the trial comes, what do we do? We develop a master plan for getting out of that trial, do we not? Don't do that, but embrace that trial as a means of what? Making you perfect, completing you, that you are lacking nothing in your faith. How many of us do that? 
I don't do that. I'm like most of you. When something comes, I'm, I'm already calculating. How can I get out of this? I never look at it and go, oh, God says to count it all joy because He's going to take this trial and He's going to mature my faith and make me more like Jesus. Look at verse 3. James says that there is no secret for dealing with trials. In fact, he says that He's going to teach you something that you already know. Notice what he says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for what? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, you already know, Christian, what I'm about to tell you. If you're a believer, you know that what I'm going to tell you is true and it's important. He's calling us here to believe and act on something that we already know. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We know the means by which God is going to accomplish His purpose. We know what He uses to bring about our perfection, which is what? Notice what He says. What is it? The testing of your faith. You've heard the statement where the rubber meets the road. Trials in our life is where the rubber meets the road. It's where our faith is put to the test. We know the goal for the believer is perfection and the means for getting us there is what? Testing our faith. And we already know that. How do we know that? If we pick this up and we read it carefully, we know that that is the case. Because we read example after example, especially in the Old Testament, of this being the case. Do we not? How about Abraham? Remember the story of Abraham? Take your... Take the fire, take the knife, take your son Isaac, take him the mount, and do what to him? Sacrifice him. How about Job? How about Joseph? His brothers did what to him? They didn't like him because he was the favorite son, and so they threw him in a pit, told his daddy he was dead, sold him off to all these marauders who take him into a country and sell him off. And in each of these cases, what do we see these guys, what happens to them in their trials? Their faith is tested and they're pushed to the point of where they're maturing and perfecting. And read the stories of these three men, especially Job. When you get to the end, it's amazing how God brought him through that trial and tested his faith. What is the proving ground for that testing? Trials of various kinds. Difficulties, struggles, heartache, suffering, pain. These are the means for testing our faith. And what is the response, church, that we're to have to that testing? Verse 2, count it all joy. Not happy, but joy. You can't get the response of joy until you understand the goal. The goal is perfecting your faith. That's what we count as joy. God's going to use this in my life to move me along to perfect my faith. Talk about some application here for just a second. What James says here, I think I've already said this to a certain degree, is exactly the opposite of our response, right? Our response to a trial, first of all, is to do this. is to question God. What's the first question we immediately ask? Why? 
Why is this happening to me? How many of y'all ever had a, a small child around and they ask you a question and you give them the answer and they go, why? And you answer that question and they go, why? Us adults do the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Why is this happening to me? Why, why, why God, are you allowing this to happen to me? I've obeyed you the best I could. I've tried my best to be faithful. And why is this happening to me? We go to God and we start asking all kinds of questions about His reason for allowing this to come in our life. There are plenty of books in Christian bookstores that are written for this exact purpose. And my warning to you is, don't buy them. Okay? They seek to answer the question that you and I will never be able to answer the secret purpose of God. Those books will never tell you why God has chosen to do this. About 20 years ago, there was a famous book written, and it's still floating around, very popular, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. First of all, the title in the book has bad theology because there are no good people. Don't buy the book because it gives you an awful answer. The reason being is because it's asking the wrong question. James says that when you're in the midst of trials, you're not to ask the question about the secret purposes of God. You ask a question about the revealed purposes of God. Do you see that? You don't ask the question about what God is doing secretly, but you ask Him about the revealed purposes of God. What is the revealed purposes of God? Verses 3 and 4. That you may be perfected and grown in your faith to the point of completion that you are lacking nothing. In other words... What He's already told you in His Word, that's what He's doing in your life. You don't have to figure that part out. It's right here, black and white. James says, don't try to work out the secret things of God. Go to the revealed things of God. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. This would be a great verse to memorize. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. The secret things belong to God. Don't worry about those, but go to the things that have been revealed, and here they are in black and white. Some of you, right now, this very moment in your life, you're in a trial. Some of you may have just come out of one. Some of you, unknown to us, are headed toward one. And for that reason, I want us to focus on what it is that you might be feeling or thinking right now in the midst of your trial. Here's some practical application. Here's what James is not saying to us, okay? James is not saying that God is punishing you. Just because life is hard does not mean that God is punishing you. You look at your circumstances and you say this, What did I do, God? You ever been there? What did I do? I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me. Right? We do that. Can I tell you something? That's a lie. That's not the truth. You may feel it, but don't feed the feeling. God does not punish His people. Listen, God does not punish His people because He's already punished His Son. Jesus went to the cross. He took upon Himself all the sin of all His people. He suffered and died in their place. And it would be unjust for God to punish Jesus and then turn around and punish you. Don't misunderstand me. Listen carefully. We reap what we sow, right? 
We make bad choices. We live with the, complicate, the implications and the complications of our foolishness. But God never punishes His people for their sin. He's already punished Jesus in your place. So God is not punishing you. Second, James is not saying God is failing you. God, you said you love me. It doesn't feel like it. God, you said you'd provide for me. I'm not seeing that. God, you make a lot of promises, but those promises don't seem to come true in my life. God, you're failing me. You may not say it like that, but guess what? It's in here. It's in your mind. God is not without power, and God is not without a plan. And when you're hurting, you need to grow in your trust that God knows what He is doing. That's what faith is. To trust that God knows what He is doing. Third, James is not saying that God has abandoned you. You need to take God's Word. Because Jesus says this, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will always be with you. The fourth thing that James is not saying is that God will make it all better for you. Draw your line under this one. Highlight it. Whatever you need to do. James is not saying that God will make it all better. Some Christians have... um, I want to be nice here. Have more of a, a greeting card Christianity than a biblical Christianity. What is greeting card Christianity? It says it's hard, but it's going to get better. We do that, right? Just hang in there. Tie a knot in the rope. Hang on. It's going to get better, brother. How many of you have been waiting a while? It's not getting better, is it? God doesn't promise that things will change, but God does promise that He will change you. Count it all joy that God will change you. Fifth, James is not saying that God will answer every question for you. When life gets hard, a trial comes, a storm comes, we ask, why, how come, where, I don't understand. God says, live by faith and not by sight. Look to me. Look to me. Don't look to the answers. We need to understand that we're not going to get all our questions answered in this life. That is not going to happen. God is not going to answer all of our questions in this life. Back to verses 2 and 4. James says that life is sometimes hard. And here's what he says. Count it joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Verses 5 through 8. You're outlining. Here's what we have. Ask God for wisdom in trials. Ask God for wisdom in trials. This is so obvious. It is so simple. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? You ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8 says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verses 5-8, through James is telling us what the Christian needs in order to rejoice in the midst of trials. And what do we need? Verse 5, James says that we need wisdom. And that if we lack wisdom, what do we do? We ask God. 
Wisdom here means, here's what wisdom means. It means looking at trials, the trials of life, the way James told us to look at them in verses 2 through 4. James says if you lack that wisdom in verses 2, 3, and 4, I promise you that God will give it to you. All you have to do is pray. Now, he didn't say to pray and God will deliver, right? God will give wisdom. Ask God to give you wisdom and He will give it to you. Not the kind of wisdom that lets you figure out all the secret things of God, but the kind of wisdom that enables you to believe what God says in His Word. God will give you that wisdom. How do we know that? Look at verse 5 again. Let him ask God. Notice what it says. Who gives... What's that next word? Generously and without reproach and it will be given to Him. James says, let him, the believer, ask God. Again, this is not a... Uh, an option. It's not good advice. The, the words let him are a command. It's a divine command. Calling on God for wisdom is not an option in our life. Notice the manner in which God gives. I love this word. Generously. Did you know that your God is not a stingy God when it comes to wisdom for living through trials? Instead, God is eager to provide guidance for how life should be approached. Notice as well, there are no limitations. He says He gives generously to who? All. All believers are commanded to ask God for wisdom, and God gives wisdom to all believers. Not only does God give wisdom generously, but notice what it says there. He also gives wisdom to all who ask, I love this, without reproach. The idea here is God does not find fault when we come to Him and ask Him for wisdom. God will not remind us of how undeserving and unworthy we are, even though that is exactly the case. James' point is this. The believers should have no hesitation when it comes to asking God for wisdom. Do not hesitate. God gives generously, and He does not find fault. He gives to all who come to Him wisdom. Verse 6, James commands the believer to ask. James says, God will not be stingy, but God requires something from us, right? What does He require? The right kind of asking. But let Him ask in faith. Let Him ask in faith without doubting. In other words, it must be a request backed up by a genuine trust in God's character. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. This is another verse you need to memorize. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, that He's there waiting and ready to give wisdom, and that He rewards those who... Does anybody know what it says next? Seek Him. He rewards those who seek Him. And James says when we seek Him with faith, God does what? He generously rewards and doesn't withhold from us. Some of you doubt that God will give you what you need. James says, ask God and don't doubt. A request that does not take God His Word, I think is an offense to God because God says, I'm faithful, but you do not believe. You do not please Him. Notice those who doubt, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James compares that doubting believer. How many of you ever threw a cork in the water and watched that cork? Bob up and down. As the water moves, the cork moves. This is evidence of being an immature believer. It does not believe 
verse 5, which says, Ask God and He'll do what? He'll give it to you. Verse 7, Here's why the believer must not doubt. For that person must not suppose that he will what? Receive anything from the Lord. Ask and God will give what? Generously and without reproach. But those who doubt, who don't believe God, don't expect what? To get anything from God because without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. James says the doubting believers should by no means expect a positive answer from God if you're going to doubt Him. Verse 8 says He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all His ways. Double-minded is a very interesting word there. It means to be divided or to have a lack of commitment. Double-minded is a person who does this. He tries to live in two worlds at the same time. The present world, which is what? (coughs) Passing away. We hold on tightly. And he's double-minded in the fact that he looks to the age to come, but he grips both of those and he holds on to them tightly. He's divided in his commitment to where his commitment should be. James says this person is what? He's unstable in everything he does. Unstable has the idea of being unsettled or restless. James is saying if you have twin desires in your life, you're going to be frustrated when trials come. Let me conclude by saying this. Some more practical application, and then we'll close it here and go into our time of communion. When you come up against trials in this life, If you're counting this life as ultimate, you're not going to have peace in this life. It's only if you're single-minded and you've given yourself over to God's promises of the age to come. If you've given yourself over to the kingdom of God, then you're able to put the trials of this world in perspective. Now, some of you have come here today and you might be saying, I'm in a trial. I'm in a storm. I'm not in a great season of my life right now. And because of that, it's hard for me to gather with other believers and it's hard to sing sometimes when that's going on in my life. It's hard for me to rejoice and worship God when this is going on in my life. But what does God say? Count it all joy. Not the storm but the goodness of God in the midst of the storm. God's goodness to grow you in your faith. Now, I'm not naive here. This is not to say that you, you, have, that you deny your feelings, but you submit them in faith to the God who is in control of your storms. Now, here's two questions. Are you in the middle of a storm today? And if so, what wisdom do you need so that you can cease being unstable? What wisdom is it? God's wisdom. Ask Him. And James says, count it all joy when you're in them trials. Because God's going to perfect you. He's going to grow you. He's going to mature you. And guess what? Your source for being able to do that is going to God and calling out to Him for wisdom. And guess what God's going to do? He's generously going to supply it. He's not going to withhold it if we come to Him in faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you.